Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb. Unfortunately, my co-host, Jeff Ayers, is unable to make it tonight, but that's okay. We've got a very exciting interview. We're going to be talking with none other than author Les Edrington, and he's going to be talking about his latest book, Hard Times, which comes out December 8th. You'll be able to get it when that comes out on December 8th. I want to remind everybody that all of our shows are brought to you by Suspense Magazine. So please make sure you visit suspensemagazine.com for more information. And don't forget our anthology, Nothing Good Happens After Midnight, with Jeffrey Deaver, along with Linwood Barkley and Heather Graham, John Lasquois, Reese Bowen, and Philip P. Ryan, and many others. That will be available November the 17th in hardcover, paperback, audio, and ebook, however you want to get it. So check out that again, Nothing Good Happens After Midnight. But without any further ado, let's jump on here with our guest, Les Edrington. So, Les, thanks so much for coming on, man. How you doing? Hey, it's a pleasure, man. I'm going to miss uh, your partner, but you, uh, we're already getting along good, so that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be good. Uh, but your book here, Hard Times, it comes out December 8th, and I'll tell you, it's a very emotional read. You kind of set this back in 1930s East Texas, which I love these kinds of stories that are set back in the time when the technology um, was not sufficient, <laughs> let's just say. Yeah. And therefore, you've got a lot of character building, a lot of emotional building, a lot of that stuff going on. You can't just hit Google. and you know. Uh, so give us a little bit about what you got going on here. Well, as far as that book or just life? Yeah, about hard times. Tell us about it. Okay. Uh, actually, my agent, uh, Svetlana Pironko, she's in uh, Dublin, Paris. Uh, she, uh, she read a col- my first collection of short stories, Monday's Meal, and there's a story in there called Mother's, A Mother's Love, which I changed later. And she said, Les, this story has haunted me ever since I've read it. She says, I think if you can develop this into a novel, you can, you can do something uh, akin to McCormick. Uh, and she says, if you carry it off right. I don't know if I have or not, but I tried. But I actually wrote this story when I was 12 and 13. I wrote a lot of stories in. I was, uh, I was an early writer. And there was another story in the in the collection called uh, the Mockingbird Cafe, and it was about a black man. And I combined the two stories is what I did. So you you can always recycle, and made them into a third story, which is what you have now. Um, I it seems like somebody noticed years ago and said all your stories somebody loses a hand or something or a hand. And I, I looked back and I thought, by God, they do. I don't know why that is. It must be some kind of Freudian thing or something. But she actually whacks off her hand to feed her kids because they're starving and can't get out. Their dogs have got them in prison in her cabin. So that was a fun time for me to write that. Yeah, you put, I mean, so Amelia, is it, is it Loxalt? Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Yeah. So Amelia Loxalt, uh, I mean, Poor thing. I mean, you, you put her in trouble right away. Um, you know, she's got an alcoholic father, or not father, she's got an alcoholic husband, uh, a lot of stuff going on, like you said, right kind of in the middle of depression. So when you were kind of thinking about writing this book, what, what kind of character were you looking for in Amelia to kind of push the story forward? Uh, boy, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know if I'm capable of answering it. I just had her in mind. When I write a novel, it's got to percolate in my head for at least 10 years. And this story, you know, I had two short stories that made up the bulk of it. It had to come together as one story, and that took about 10 years. So I had a really good idea of who she was. Uh, actually, I saw, I saw her as a character in a picture on the Internet, uh, G-N-A-T, um, 
of this sharecropper's uh, uh, wife that was on the porch of the washing machine and the whole bit. And I thought, that's Amelia right there as far as the physical description. I don't describe my characters very rarely, but that's who I saw when I wrote her. Um, I just I just pictured, a, this is a very religious time in America, especially in the South, and I imagined somebody that was very moral and stuck to those morals no matter what, and that's kind of what her character is. She has a code of honor, and she sticks to it whether it hurts or not, and often it does hurt her. You there? Yep. Oh, okay. I just quit talking. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought you were in the middle of it. Um, so give us a little bit, a bit about some of, you know, some of the secondary characters. I mean, I know Lucius Tremaine, very big character, of course, her husband, Arnold Crichton. Uh, I was, I'm going to say this right. Probably, is it, is it Crichton? I had it Christian. Christian? Okay. So give us a little bit about, you know, so, you know, the creation and the, and the background of, of those two male characters. Okay, I uh, grew up in East Texas on the Gulf Coast, and my grandmother had a seafood uh, restaurant and a bar and a cab company. And I grew up in a rough time where nobody nobody monitored kids. In fact, when I was 12 years old, she made me dispatcher of the cab company on a midnight on my 12th birthday. She said, it was time to learn the cab business. And the first night on the job, uh, another cab driver was messing around with another one. It was kind of slow, and he, guy was pretending to throw a rattlesnake on him, and the snake was dead, but the guy didn't know that. And he finally threw it on him. The guy pulled out a gun and shot him in the throat. Well, I was his dispatcher, so I had to call the cops, which I did. We didn't have 911, and you had to look it up. And uh, But that was my background. So I, I grew up in kind of a rough area, era and a rough place, and that's the way I saw these people. Nobody went to the cops with their problems in those days. You settled it yourself. And... Uh, that's just the way I see them, very self-sufficient, very hard people, and uh, that's that's what Arnold was. He was a drunk, too, which a lot of people are that are in that situation, and uh, I saw him as, as adhering to his code, too, but his code maybe wasn't as lofty as Amelia's was. He believed that a man was the lord of the castle and that the women should, you know, do whatever they told him to do. And uh, Amelia was raised that way, too. She did to the best of her ability to certain lines. But uh, that's kind of the way I saw those two. And who was the other one you wanted? You asked about the other one? We had Arnold and you had, yeah, Arnold and and Lucius are are the two that you had. Oh, Lucius, story about him. He was part of another story that I brought together at Mockingbird Cafe. And Lucius is a huge black man who was on the run from the law in New Orleans. He escaped from prison in Detroit where he, he'd uh, robbed somebody to pay for his daughter who was in an iron lung. And he escaped to uh, New Orleans, and he got in the fracas there with a white cop from Mississippi and killed him and was on the run. And that's how he comes to hook up with uh, Amelia by accident. And then they're together for a while. He helps her out a lot. She helps him. And... So on and so forth. I don't tell this as well as I can write it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. But uh, the, the, the setting is something that, that, you've, that, you've, that you've talked about a couple times now, and, and, you know, East Texas and what it was like. I, I've been through East Texas. Uh, my, my mom's side of the family is from San Antonio. I've been down to that area. Yeah. Uh, I've been to Houston one time and kind of over in that area. But in 1930s East Texas, how much research did you kind of have to do to get the real sense of what it was like at the area at that time? Well, not much, because being from the South, I come from an oral tradition, 
and I'd heard so many stories in my life about it. Plus, it hadn't changed that much. Uh, I set this close to the big thicket. If, you, if, you, if you're aware of it, the big thicket is where heavyweight uh, contender Roy Harris came from, and he was from a town called Cut and Shoot, Texas, a little town that's in the big thicket. It's a huh. huge forest. And uh, he, they named it Cut and Shoot because that's all there was to do on a Saturday night, cut and shoot each other in the bars. And that's the name of the town. So that tells you all you need to know about it. And it's just a rough place, very rough place. But uh, they don't tolerate outsiders. I, actually, I moved to New Orleans a few years ago and went to, well, to Plaquemine and went to work for a uh, Roffler uh, dealer. Uh, that's a product company for a hair supply company. And he sent me to this town to recruit this barber. And I remember the town. It was in Louisiana. And when I went to the town, it was a dirt road, and the sidewalks were wood, wooden sidewalks, I swear to God. And uh, this is in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And I went in this barber shop, and I went there, and I introduced myself to the barber. And he says, are you a Yankee? And I laughed. And I said, well, I'm half Yankee, half, uh, half Southern. And I said, I Grew up in Texas, and, and I've lived in Chicago in something in Indiana. He says, I don't talk to Yankees. And I said, okay, sir, see you later. Bye. Went up to my car, and it wasn't a car on the street. It, when I went in, when I went back, there was a pickup in front of me, and the pickup behind me, two guys with each in the rifles and shotguns slung over the, the windows. And I knew better than I had about six inches pointers to get out. And it took me a half hour to work myself out without touching their bumpers. They followed me all the way back to the state highway, and since I reached that, and I was sweating blood because usually I carry a gun, but I, I hadn't taken one that day. And uh, they honked and waved at me, and I took off, and I got back to the, to the shop, and I told my boss, don't ever send me a place like that again. And he laughed, and he said, yeah, they are kind of rough with Yankees out there. I had an Illinois place in my car at the time. And so that that hasn't changed. That hadn't changed a whole lot in those days. It has now, uh, but... Back in the 60s and 70s, that's when I wrote this story. Well, it was in the 60s. Huh. So things hadn't really changed a whole lot. Wow. See, and that's like, you know, when you're looking at, you know, Americana and you go around the United States, and I've been to almost all the 50 states, but, of course, I haven't been in certain areas of them. I mean, Texas is a mm-hmm. massive state. Right. Um, and when you go into these areas and these small rural towns and these things like that, they do kind of have their own brand of justice, like you talked about before, don't they? Yes, they do. They don't call the cops. Plus, and is that just I, because? I, uh, and, and is that just how they grew up? Is that just how they are? They're just like we're taking care of this of ourselves, and we only need the cops if it's something major. Yep, and they, I doubt they even call them in. Even the major stuff, they try to take care of. Uh, I had some experience with that. Uh, I was kind of an outlaw for several years. In fact, I did time in prison. I don't know if you knew that. I did. But uh, I spent two years in Pendleton, and when I was there, Johnson was president, and they did a uh, study, and he came on TV one day. We had one black-and-white TV in the entire prison in a rec room, and uh, me and a bunch of inmates were sitting in there, and Johnson broke into the program and said, we've just conducted an exhaustive study in prisons in the U.S., and he said, we have found that Pendleton is the single worst prison in the U.S., and we all got <laughs> sure like it was our Super Bowl team. Because that was before Super Bowls, but yeah. that's kind of what it was like. I was in eight riots when I was there. It was, it was pretty rough uh, uh, time. But Man. I've always kind of lived in those kind of milieus. So I, I know how to handle it. I know what to do, how to get out of it, how to stay out of it, that kind of thing. 
and I understand the I, I understand that people are a man's a man and a woman's a woman. That's just the way it is. And now there's a lot of lust in these stories, then, because you got a ton of experience. Oh yeah, I usually draw on my own background. I don't do have to do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Now, and when you do, you do a lot of tours, are you, do you go to a lot of events uh, and so people can like see you and go out and, and talk with you? I used to. I used to go to VoucherCon and stuff like that, but I'm 77 now, so it's, it's getting hard for me to get around. And I have uh, COPD, and I've got a bad back too. I got, I got Operation Tiger Woods had, but he had one uh, thing inserted, and I've had five. So, oh, jeez. I'm in bad shape. I, I empathize <laughs> with your wife. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Her car accident got her. Now, where? Um, so, so you do a lot of. Uh, you know, I know you have your own blog. What's the main yeah. thing? What's the thing that you talk about on your blog? Do you just kind of talk about anything during? And I know you've done some. You've done a lot of writing books and things of that nature. So talk a little bit about you know your blog and things that you talk about. Okay, I, that's probably the wrong subject for me because I've neglected it so much. I, I really, I spend all my. I have an online class. I spend all my time with that in my own writing, and I just don't have time for a blog. And I get almost get to the place where I see it as kind of silly writing in a way. It's kind of a necessary evil, but I've got, there's a lot of stuff on there, mostly about writing, that kind of thing. Because like you said, I've, I've got a couple of craft books out. Finding Your mm-hmm. Voice is my first one. And then Hooked is my second one, which has kind of become a classic. And uh, I have, actually, we've got a Japanese publisher right now asking for the right Japanese rights to it. So, that would be a big market if we could sell those. So, huh. yeah, and I and I teach, like I said, I teach an online writing class on writing the novel. And over probably a 15-year period, I used to teach at UCLA in their writing program there and a bunch of other places, the University of Toledo, uh, Vermont College, a whole bunch of Writers' Digest schools. And over a 15-year period out of my classes and private coaching, I've had probably three dozen people get published and published well. Not self-published, but actually published with a real publisher. So I'm very proud of that, and that's kind of what I'm known for, I guess. <laughs> well, hey, uh, the other thing is, so with your thriller books, I, I guess you know thriller suspense kind of books that you do, they're pretty much all standalones. Uh, is there any reason why you know you, you've never really got grabbed a hold of you know those uh, the series character and kind of done it that way? Yeah, it's been a conscious thing. I get a bunch of agents, and in fact, I love firing them because you know when you first <laughs> you love firing them. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, it's fun firing them now. I don't have to worry about getting another one. <laughs> but but uh, never mind my train of thought. I have Alzheimer's, so I, I go off tangent once in a while. Just slap me, I'll come That's back. Right. Um, and you so, but, so oh, like series or standalones? Why are you more oh, standalone yeah, than series? <laughs> Every every agent I had said, you should do a series. But I write because I love to write, and I'm not going to write for money, a market, or anything. I write for – I really do write the book I wish somebody else had written in the end, so I have to write it to read it myself. And I write things that I like to read. So that, I think that's – if I have any success, I think that's why. I think people sense that when I read my stuff, that uh, I wrote this for me. And hopefully people will think like me, which I guess I don't know if there's all that many out there. But, uh, no, I, I'm not interested in the series. It's like years ago Charlie Manson called me, 
uh, a, a mutual friend of ours is writing a book about famous people who did drugs in their youth, and that was one of the chapters, and so was Charlie Manson. And he, his name was Russ Riesling. He's a professor at the University of Toledo. He went out to visit Charlie for some interviews, and he had my, a copy of my book, Money's Meal. And Charlie saw it and glommed onto it, and he says, do you mind if I borrow it? Meaning, do you mind if I keep this? And so Russ said, no, I'll get another one. So he let him have it. And then he, a Manson called up uh, Russ, and he says, this guy's a real deal. What'd you, hell yeah, I was in prison too, dude. You ain't, you ain't the only guy. Anyway, and he asked me, I said, no, I don't care. But when I was in the joint, you couldn't call anybody. Now they have all kinds of things. They have TVs in their cells, and they got all kinds of It's like countries. It's like camp. But anyway. It's like camp. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It really is. When Johnson came out and said we were the worst prison in the United States, that covers a lot of territory. We were. I was in eight riots my, in, during the two and a half years I spent in there, and I don't even count the riot I came in on. But, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of rough. You had to be rough to survive, and I kind of was. Anyway, uh, Charlie started talking to me, and he's got a cellmate named Roger Smith, or he had one. He's room temperature now. But uh, he had a cellmate, Roger Smith, and Roger Smith wanted to talk to me, so... I didn't realize you had to pay for their calls at the time. And this went on for a couple of months, and then we started getting these humongous telephone bills. My wife said, ah, that's enough of that shit. So <laughs> we ended that. But Roger Smith, this the reason I'm going into this story, it kind of goes along with series. Uh, right. He said, Les, I want you to write my life story. Roger Smith is known as the most stabbed man in U.S. history, prison history, and he probably was. He'd been stabbed over 300 times, and he'd taken out probably 300 guys. And he was in safekeeping with Charlie. That's why they were in safekeeping, because if, if they put him out in the yard in a real prison, they wouldn't have lasted five minutes, either one of them. Charlie's a little bitty dude, and they would have ate him for supper. He, he's not bad at all. He gets he gets girls to do his dirty work for him. Anyway, um, Roger says, I, I, I've come to Jesus, and he says, I want to tell my story so little kiddies like me can avoid this shit. Well, I didn't buy his conversion because I've seen a million jailhouse conversions and they're all bullshit. Since they get out, that that's in the wind. Anyway, so he kept saying, "I want you to write my uh, my my biography," and he says, I, "Charlie has a eight has a, a secretary in North or South Carolina, I forget which, that takes care of all his writings and stuff and makes his appointments because he gets paid for the stuff he used to do, but he didn't get to keep it, so they sent to various charities." Anyway, since Roger was cellmate and butt fucker, I'm sorry, <laughs> partner. Anyway, uh, he 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 got to use uh, he got to use Charlie's secretary. He says, "Well, I've got I've got trunks full of journals. I've kept a journal all my life, and I've got all the material you'd ever need." And I kept saying, "No, no, I'm sorry, I, I'm not interested." I said, "I've got so much of my own work." So he was after me for like two weeks, like that, every day, calling me, "Please write my story." And I kept saying no, and finally he says, what's the real reason you don't want to write it? And I said, you really want the real reason? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, the reason is, from what I understand, all you do is go around stabbing people. He says, yeah. And I said, well, it's like a serial killer. It's boring. Do something different, I'd be interested. I mean, I I really mean that. Serial killers to me are not exciting. You're boring-ass people. They keep doing the same thing over and over. It gets bigger, but that's the only difference. And he got mad then, and I guess his religion faded away because he started calling me MF this and MF that. <laughs> and he says, if I ever get out of Corcoran, he says, you're the first guy I'm going to come see. And I started laughing. I said, Roger, 
I said, you're in a prison with 14-foot walls. I said, unless California has the biggest earthquake they, they'll ever have, you'll never get out. And if you get, I know your background. You're going to come see me with a freaking knife. And I said, i got a gun, dude. <laughs> don't, don't try to sell me a wolf ticket. I ain't buying it. <laughs> so that was uh, the end of our conversation. I should have got Charlie to endorse my books and everything. Probably was sold a million copies in, but I never thought of it until it was too late. Uh-huh. But uh, anyway, you only talked you only talked to you only talked to Manson that, that that one time or so. No, I talked to him for a couple two or three weeks, and then he got bored, and I got bored, and he hooked me up with his cellmate to talk to. But okay. uh, no, he's he's a nut job. I mean, he's not interesting to me. There's there's a million guys like him that did, just didn't get the publicity. There's, there's right. all kinds of wacko. He's not bad. There's no reason to be afraid of a dude like that unless you're afraid of a woman coming at you with a knife. Get a freaking gun, man. <laughs> well, he had that one Tex Winners guy. Wasn't his name Tex Winners or something yeah, that he had? Tex that was Winners. like his muscle? Yeah, yeah. But Charlie's Charlie's a little bit of a piece of shit. He he really was. He's like all mouth. In the, that's why he's in, that's why he was in safekeeping. They wouldn't let him out in the yard. They didn't let him mingle with real prisoners. He'd have been dead in five minutes. Oh, somebody he, would have done it just to get their name in the paper. Oh, no, oh, no kid, no lie. Yeah, I mean he's not bad. Nobody thinks he's bad. That's in the joint. Not at all. <laughs> it's like no. this other guy. His, his partner. He you know he stabbed three hundred guys. I don't know how many he killed, but that's no big deal. I know lots of people that stab, maybe not 300, but it's it's a way of life. It's what you do. Now, is there any kind of story or any, th- or any case out there that interests you that you might think about ever doing like a true crime novel about? Well, I was going to do, I was in the joint with a guy who was in the Sylvia Likens case. It's probably the biggest case in Indiana ever. Oh. And I see Ketchum or somebody did a thing about it. I wrote him, but he never wrote back that. I did time with the guy, the son of the... Uh, the mother that kept, I don't know if you know the Sylvia Likens story. She was, uh, I do not. her mother was in a carnival or something, left her with his family over the summer while she went with the carny, and they tortured the kid all summer long and did all kinds of stuff and then finally killed her, kept her in prison in the bay. It was a big deal at the time. And I think Ketchum did a novel. I'm not sure. I can't remember for sure. Anyway, I emailed him, but he never emailed back. Said, you know, dude, I, I have some firsthand knowledge. Anyway, the guy that, I thought about doing that, but he already did it, so that, that's over. But I don't know if I'd be that interested or not, because he wasn't that interesting. This this kid, he was the only one ever sent to Pendleton, I think. It was under 18, because it's an adult prison. But he, his crime is considered bad, so they put him in Pendleton, but they kept him separate from everybody. Well, I was in barber school, and they made him our receptionist. Well, he's the prettiest guy I've ever seen. I thought I remember thinking, if I was ever going to go get well, gay, it has to be somebody like him, and I kept looking, but I couldn't get interested, so I thought, well, I'm not gay then, so uh, I can't I can't go that, that route, but anyway, he, uh, everybody thought he was, he was a pushover, and I remember a big black guy, he's like six foot eight, we called Maggie, he was a big bag, and uh, he wore a wig and heels and the whole bit, made him like 6'10 or 6'11, and he'd walk around and when people came to the movie on Saturday, he'd hide behind bushes and reach out and bop them over the top of the head and drag them behind the bushes and take one. And uh, they thought this guy, this guy went after, I can't remember the kid's name, uh, the Sylvia Likens kid. Anyway, they thought he was going to do that, but when he went to hit on him, the guy jumped, he had to jump up to get him and, you know, cut his throat. 
and killed him. And I thought, well, you don't want to mess with this kid. I don't care how pretty he looks. Now, that's a bad dude, but uh, he took care of business. But uh, and that's what I thought was interesting. But, no, the case, it's just grimy. It, I didn't do crimes like that. I don't care for people that do crimes like that. So I don't want to get my, I don't want to get my mind dirty, you know, thinking about them. True. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of a rabbit hole that you would walk down that would be maybe hard to get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there is there any kind of subject matter or things that you won't touch in your novels then? Nope. I've always believed that. I've, I was always told very early on, the best writers go to the darkest place inside them, and that's what you write about. And if you can't do that, you may do commercially good stuff, but you're not ever going to do stuff that's going to last. And I believe it. I wrote one of my novels called The Rapist. Yep. And uh, I was I was really surprised because I did that. I that's not a crime I'm interested in. Never have. Can't see myself doing it or anything. But I can understand somebody that does that, and that's what I wrote about. And it surprised me because my wife read it and she said it's like you crawled into my mind. I thought that blew me away, and she's never explained it. But I thought wow. But I've had a lot of people tell me similar things when they read that book. I'm very proud of those kind of books. Very yeah. Proud. Is that the one and you still probably that, get the most emails from, people still contacting you on that? Yeah, and I wrote that because of Bukowski. Bukowski wrote what I think is the bravest short story ever written. It's called The Fiend, and it's about a guy that's a child molester. And uh, But he did too, and I, I wrote that to write see if I could beat his ass because I'm a huge admirer of Bukowski. And I think I did because what he did, he made his character third person. It's probably the only story he ever wrote third person. So he put some distance between himself and the character, and I didn't. I wrote my first person, so I, that's how I beat him. And uh, that was a vile character he picked, but it's a powerful story. I had a good friend. She just passed away recently, a writer, a Jane Bradley, and uh, she knew the story, too, and she said she wouldn't allow it in her house. And uh, and, and she she's, she's a writer. I mean, writers should be able to read anything. But she, she thought it was so vile she couldn't even read it couldn't even put it in her, keep it in her house. And my story, I'm sure she never allowed in her house. <laughs> <laughs> she would allow you through the front door. Well, she's room temperature now, so it doesn't matter, but she yeah, was, yeah. I respected her a lot. Now, where's the best place for everyone to find out about your writing? Is it, um, is it your website, letsedgertonwriting.blogspot.com? Yeah, it's letsedgertononwriting.blogspot.com backslash. That, or just go to Amazon under my name. I've got an author's page there and, you know, all that good stuff. And then I know Down and Out Books has something, um, I know they have you listed on there too. Do you do any social, do you do any social media do you, or at all? I'm on Twitter, but I, 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 and I'm on Facebook, but I just go there to check. Actually, I don't know how this happened. Years ago, I got a notice from Facebook that I was, I was over four, 5,000, couldn't take any more. And they suggest I set up another page, Les Edgerton Author, which I have. So now I've got two of them. That's got a couple of thousand. So I've got like 7,000, which I guess is a good number for Facebook. But I, I neglect it. I don't do much. I post funny shit once in a while and stuff. I'm just, and, and, and I'm getting more and more sick of Facebook to be in Twitter, to be honest. Social I, media I, is tough. It's a tough ride. Yeah. I, it's just like gossipy crap. It is. It's just a lot of people who say a lot of stuff that you don't really care about hearing about, and now you just have to kind of filter it all out. 
You got it, man. You got it. You know, when you were when you were younger, when there was no social, when there was no social media, somebody would spout off. You could just go <laughs> and then just kind of walk away. And now you're like, Jesus yeah. Christ! Now I got to keep scrolling and see all this crap. <laughs> yeah, I like social media. I like just sitting in a bar. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. And that that's that's where you get when people like to face you. They're different animals. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Les, we want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the book Hard Times. Again, everybody, it is coming out December the 8th, so you'll be able to buy it when, uh, when this interview airs. Uh, again, hardcover paperback. Is it going to be in Kindle and hard and uh, audiobook? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. It will be in Kindle. I know the ebook and in paperback. I don't know about hardcover. Uh, they I got you know. listed as hardcover on Amazon, just to let you know. Hey, wow, great. I haven't had a hardcover since my first novel. Yeah, but, uh, but you don't know about the audio yet, or maybe not. No, I don't. But I think I I suspect they will. Everybody's doing audio these days, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's just a nice little way to you know kind of do something different. Uh, audio books yeah. are pretty popular. I mean, they don't sell quite as much as the other ones, of course. But right. it's a nice way to kind of reach out, and uh, it's not a sure. lot to do. It's just I mean, it's some work up front. But then once you get it done, it's just kind of nice to be able to have it there. Yeah, you know, I a good think narrator. It's all about the narrator. Got to have a good narrator. I, yeah, I know. I was with one house that was early in audio, and the guy sent me an, a narrator. It was horrible because he tried to act all the parts. And I said, mm-hmm. no, you just need somebody that has a nice voice read this in a monotone. And right. so they went to that. It, it worked. But these guys that get all acting, or whatever you call it, Hollywoody on you, I, I I can't listen to something like that where they're trying to play all the parts and you know usually they get it wrong anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's more of a uh, it's one of those. Gosh, it's it's not really it's it's more like a it's not really a play, um, but it's more like a yeah. production. It's like an audio book production where they have different people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. John, well, last, you, I know you. I knew you got the magazine, but do you write? Yes, uh, my wife and I are actually writing uh, a series that we're going to start writing. It's going to be a, it's going to be a mystery cool. series. I'm a huge whodunit. I love Agatha Christie. Okay. I love Murder She Wrote. I love having readers having to wait to the end to figure out who did it and try to figure out sure. the mystery. So that's what we're writing. So we're really we're going back and we're writing a complete you know whodunit. Uh, that's the series we're going to do. It'll be in the cozy vein because I think that that's just really popular for whodunits right now. You kind of put them in that yeah. vein. But, yeah, so did that's what ever, we're doing. Did you ever go to Magna? Magna. That, they're no. over now, but uh, uh, John Gilchrist and all those people used to go there, and I used to go there. That was a nice, quiet, really, it's all about cozies and stuff. And I don't no, know, but I'm I like not, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not, I've not been to that one. We See, the problem is being out in Los Angeles, we typically only go to, like, Thriller Fest and anything that kind of comes to California. We've been to Seattle in the, in the PWNA conference, uh, bound to BoucherCon a couple times in San Francisco and Long Beach when it was here, and then we were going to go to Left Coast Crime in San Diego this year, but then COVID hit, and re- COVID hit the day that it started, and then everything got canceled, and then that was it. So, yeah, but that's about what we do. Um, we don't travel around too much for conferences, just kind of the big ones. We've never been to Killer Nashville or Malice and uh, – Chicago, um, or a couple yeah. of the others, but yeah, we try to get around. Well, I want to send you a co- I want to send you guys a copy of my uh, my memoir. Can I send yeah. you an ebook? Copy? You read those? 
Absolutely. You just email it over to us. Okay. Sounds yeah, great. Should I do one for each of you? No, just send us one. We got we just we just put on the same Kindle. We just have one account okay, and then cool. we just read on all of our Kindles. What's your what's your email address? Which should I use? You just send it to editor at suspensemagazine.com. Okay, do you mind sending me an, an email just to refresh my memory? I will. You can, and uh, Julia can also handle it too, so we can handle with Julia. Okay, because well, I'd like you to read that because I think that you might be interested in that. I will. And it didn't get enough legs when it came out. So anyway, I got you. Are, are you well, thank you so much, Les. Hey, again, we want to thank you so much for coming on. A hard times, everybody. December eighth. Go out there and grab your copy when it comes out. And Les, you have a great night. And again, thank you so much for coming on. You too. And people, remember, Christmas is right around the corner, so buy two copies. Exactly. You got one for yourself and one for somebody else. Dude. All right. All right, man. You have a good one. We'll talk soon. You too. Thank you. Sure. Bye-bye. See you.